Matthew 9, 1 through 13 is our text this afternoon. Matthew 9, 1 through 13. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, church. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for giving us your spirit. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill our minds and hearts. Come to save and to sanctify the things that you came to do when you were sent forth by the Father and the Son. Now take this time, Holy Spirit, to glorify the Son and reveal the Son to us all. In his name we pray. Amen. In 1829, two men decided to rob a mail carrier. This is a postal worker in the state of Pennsylvania. After they robbed the mail carrier, the postal worker, they were caught, captured, and found guilty of six different charges, including putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. They were sentenced to execution by hanging. The first one was executed right away, but not the second one. The second was an individual named George Wilson. Wilson had influential friends that pleaded with the president, who was Andrew Jackson at the time, for a pardon, for a presidential pardon. So he got the request for the pardon, he considered it, and Jackson graciously extended a pardon to George Wilson, so he wouldn't have to be executed by hanging. And you'd think, okay, that's the end of story. The guy isn't executed. He gets a fresh start on life. He lives happily ever after. Not quite. Surprisingly, George Wilson declines the pardon. I mean, he gets this presidential pardon from Andrew Jackson and says, thanks, but no thanks. Wilson stated that he had nothing to say and did not wish in any manner to avoid sentence. Can you imagine if you were one of his friends 
I mean, going to bat for your friend and getting him this pardon and then finding out that your friend said, no, thank you. Well, the judge faced a dilemma. Do you make this guy, George Wilson, take the presidential pardon by force? The Supreme Court was called in to rule on this situation and said that the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, a pardon is an act of grace, but delivery is not completed without being accepted. It may then be rejected, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. History never records why George Wilson refused this presidential pardon, but we can certainly guess. Maybe he didn't want to admit that he was guilty of these pretty serious crimes and that he needed a pardon. Maybe he was too proud to admit that he was in the wrong. Maybe he thought it was too good to be true. Maybe he thought he would rather die than change the way he lived, that he would have had to stop robbing others, stop robbing mail carriers, and start living honestly. Well, King Jesus comes to us in Matthew chapter 9, offering us forgiveness of sins, a pardon, not from the president, from, but from the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're probably thinking, it seems crazy that George Wilson would refuse his pardon. But it's even crazier that people would refuse King Jesus and choose to die in their sins rather than receive the divine pardon. And so this passage confronts us with this question this evening. Jesus came to forgive, so will you place your faith in him and follow him? Jesus Christ, he came to forgive, so will you place your faith in him and follow him? This is a question that confronts all of us, whether you are a religious person or non-religious, whether you're a Pharisee or a tax collector, whether you are a disciple of Christ or not. Because even if you are a disciple of Christ, being a disciple is not a one-and-done deal. Being a disciple means getting up every day, denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and choosing to follow Jesus. So wherever you are in this story that we're going to see that's unfolded by Matthew in, in Matthew chapter 9, we're in there somewhere. If you're new to us, uh, we're currently preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. It's about ki a king, King Jesus, and his kingdom. We recently finished uh, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, that was chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus gives us kingdom ethics, how to live life in his kingdom. So we've wrapped up that section on kingdom ethics, and now we're on a new section, kingdom miracles. And we see that Jesus not only teaches with authority, he does things with authority. He doesn't just claim to be a new lawgiver, but he backs that up with divine power. So in this section, chapters 8 and 9, we see 10 mighty acts of deliverance. I don't think it's an accident that you see the number 10. You remember from the book of Exodus that God carried out 10 plagues, 10 acts of judgment in order to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. The number 10, I believe, signals that a divine deliverance is happening once again. Leo did a fantastic job uh, setting us up for that. Chapter 8 ends with Jesus uh, healing two men who were demon-possessed, and that brings us right to chapter 9. So let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, 
he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, if you're paying attention, this city is the city of Capernaum. Up until this point in, in the Gospel of Matthew, there, should be, there are three key places in the narrative that you should be aware of. Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of Jesus, Nazareth, which was his childhood home, and now number three, Capernaum, which is the base of operation for Jesus' ministry. Jesus would have been known in Capernaum. He would have been something like a local celebrity. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, those, those Gospel writers provide us some additional detail. We find out that the friends who are bringing the paralytic, they're desperate. It's crowded. The house is packed. So they take their friend up onto the roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. In fact, they're so desperate, they go on the roof, they tear off the tiles, and then they lower their friend in through the roof to get him to Jesus. Well, Matthew omits, uh, shortens the account and gets us right to the most important details. And the most important thing is that Jesus sees their faith and his, the paralytic's ultimate need. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And that's surprising if you think about it. Okay, these men, they're bringing to Jesus a man who's paralyzed. He can't walk. He can't take care of himself. Anytime he goes somewhere, he has to have a number of people carry him. They're bringing him to Jesus so that Jesus can heal him of his paralysis, the fact that he's paralyzed. But Jesus doesn't heal him right away. He doesn't say, your faith has made you well. Get up, take up your mat, and go home. Instead, Jesus addresses the man's sin. And he, Jesus wants to be clear that this man's primary need is his need for forgiveness, not his need for healing. And that's for each one of us is our most desperate need. As we've been learning throughout the book of Matthew, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we've seen that it's not enough for us to avoid adultery, sleeping with a, another man's wife. In fact, if you look with lust, that makes you guilty of adultery. It's not enough to avoid murder. If you're angry, you, you're guilty. It's not enough to speak the truth only when you're in a court, when you're under, under an oath. We must always be so truthful that an oath is not necessary. It's not enough for us to work hard and provide for ourselves and our families. We have to store up treasures in heaven. We have to, God calls his people to live a life of generosity. And we have to trust him with every aspect of, his, of our lives to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Basically, to be perfect is our heavenly father is perfect. But none of us meet that standard. It doesn't matter if you've been going to church your whole life. It doesn't matter if you've done your best to keep all the rules at home and at school. None of us can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can stand before God and say, I've kept all of your law all of the time. I've always loved you with all of my heart. I, am, I have sinless perfection, enough for me to enter into heaven. None of us reach that standard. In fact, the Bible tells us that tells us quite the opposite, that when we were born into this world, we were born a slave to sin. That means we were born with a sin nature that corrupts every part of who we are. And that means because of our sin nature, we're guilty of sin. The wages of sin is death. That means we're alienated. 
That means because of our sin, we are separated from a good and righteous and holy God. That also means we're shamed. That means by nature, we do anything and everything to cover up and cover over our sin, to run from God and hide from our sin. And that means that we're waiting on death row. Waiting on death row. But unlike Wilson, we're not waiting for death by or execution by hanging. We're waiting for eternal destruction and eternal judgment in a place that, a, that the Bible calls hell. Because of our sin, because that we're guilty, alienated, and shamed, the Bible says that we are sentenced to eternal destruction. That's why Jesus says forgiveness is our greatest need. It's our greatest need because it's the difference between the temporary versus the eternal. See, this man, he was paralyzed, he was sick, he needed healing, he needed attention, but his paralysis, his sickness wasn't going to last forever. Our earthly bodies, each one of us, these are temporary earthly bodies, but our soul is eternal. And our judgment, God's judgment against sin lasts forever. Later on, Jesus would warn not to fear the one who has the power to kill the body, but has no power over the soul. Jesus says, rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And for us, it's hard to grasp the eternal. What does it mean that sin is punished in hell for eternity? I mean, we're creatures of time. We live this day, this day comes to an end, there's a new day. This month comes to an end, there's a new month. This year comes to an end, there's 2019. But eternal punishment in hell never comes to an end. Someone who who dies in their sin, who is punished in hell, can spend 10,000 years there and isn't 10,000 years closer to being done. It goes on forever and ever. That's why Jesus would warn us, what does it profit a man for him to gain the world but lose or forfeit his own soul? So so Jesus here is reminding us that the stakes are high. This isn't a game that Jesus is playing. In fact, this is the difference, you know, whether your sins are forgiven or not, is the difference between life or death, heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal destruction. So then the question for us is, do we see our need for forgiveness as our greatest need? Or do we see some other problem as our greatest need? Maybe you're going through some health challenges. Maybe some financial difficulties. Or maybe some relational difficulties, especially as we go into the holidays. And those are all problems, real problems, real difficulties. But none of them compare to our greatest need, our greatest need to be made right, to be forgiven of our sins before a holy God. Jesus Christ, he came to forgive So will you place your faith in him and follow him? Will you surrender your life to King Jesus? Let's go on here, verses 3 through 5. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? See, the scribes here are the educated and religious elite. They would have known that nobody could forgive sins but God alone. 
And the reason is that our sins are primarily against God. That's why uh, King David in Psalm 51 would write, against you, you only have I sinned. So the scribes are, are, are thinking, well, Jesus, how dare you claim to be God when you're just a man? You're just a man. You're not God. And so Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking, and he confronts their incorrect, evil thoughts, and then graciously puts himself to the test. He puts himself to the test and says, well, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? On one level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't verify it, right? There's no way to, it's not visible. It's not like when someone's sins are forgiven, suddenly there's a a spotlight shining down from heaven, a heavenly choir singing and, and God's voice saying, this man's, this woman's sin is forgiven. It doesn't work like that. So in theory, anyone could say, your sins are forgiven, but there would be no way to prove or disprove whether that actually happened. Can't see it right away. That means it's harder to actually say rise and walk because this is something that you can actually verify. Either the miracle happened or it didn't. Either Jesus is telling the truth and he knows what he's talking about. This guy can get up and take, pick up his mat and walk or he has no idea what he's talking about. So it's harder to say rise and walk. It's verifiable or not. The miracle happened or not. But pause with me for one moment and think. On another level, actually, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven because you have to be divine to say that. You have to be God. The prophets of the Old Testament, they healed people. They healed the sick. They cleansed lepers. But they weren't God, and they never claimed to be God. So in order for for Jesus to prove the harder thing, that that he is God and he does have the power to forgive sin, Jesus does the easier thing. Verses 6 through 8. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So by performing this miracle, by instantaneously healing this paralyzed man, he, he, he gets up, picks up his mat, and goes home. Jesus proves his divinity, that he is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. As Leo talked about last week, Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, and it's a messianic title. It's drawn from Daniel chapter 7, where there's an exalted figure, a figure given power and dominion and authority by God, and all the nations would come and worship this Son of Man figure in Daniel 7. However, the the term Son of Man actually has a double meaning. It could also, the the term Son of Man could also just mean human being. God addresses the prophet Ezekiel, for instance, as Son of Man. He calls Ezekiel Son of Man. But it takes the eyes of faith for someone to see that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is not just a human being, but is actually the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully divine. If you're familiar with the book of Matthew, you know later on Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds, who do the people say is the Son of Man? Disciples answer and say, well, the crowds think you're John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. But the key thing is, those are all human beings. 
Those are not God. The crowds think Jesus is no more than, than an exalted prophet, teacher, or human being. But remember how Peter answers. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but this has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. So it takes a supernatural act of God to show you, show me, to show the people, right, that Jesus is ministering to, that the Son of Man is not just fully man, but he is fully God. That from eternity past, that Jesus, long before he was a man, long before he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, Jesus was and is and always will be God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God. But the crowds don't get it. Did you catch that in the passage in verse 8? They glorify God, but they don't glorify Jesus. See, Jesus, God incarnate, the God-man is standing right in front of them, but they don't glorify him. And in light of this miracle, this demonstration of divine power, the question now confronts not just the scribes, not just the crowds, but all of us. Jesus came to forgive. So will you place your faith in him and follow him? Not just the Son of Man, but the Son of God. That's what we're going to see happen in the next section in verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, after healing the paralytic, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So in this section, the scene shifts to Matthew, the tax collector in the town of Capernaum. In case you weren't aware, tax collectors were all universally hated because they were viewed as traitors of the Israelite people who enriched themselves by working for the Roman oppressors. And tax collectors were free to search even your home to collect their taxes. That means they could, they could come to your house, look through your rooms, and seize any undeclared property that they felt like was owed to the government. It's like if the IRS agent here didn't just have the power to collect taxes for Uncle Sam, but they had the power to go into your house and collect whatever they wanted to. So Jesus goes to this tax collector, someone who's hated by all of his countrymen, who's viewed as a traitor, someone who's hated and despised, and says, follow me. And Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus. Matthew paid a high cost. He would have left a well-paying job, financial security. And unlike a fisherman, someone leaving the tax booth, he wouldn't have been able to come back to the tax booth later on. Soon as he left, somebody else would have filled that spot. There was no turning back for Matthew. But for Matthew, none of that was worth keeping. None of that was holding on to if, if it would keep him from following Jesus. And after he leaves everything behind, surrenders his life to King Jesus, Matthew the disciple 
Once Matthew the, the tax collector, now Matthew the disciple, he throws a party for all of his friends and invites Jesus to meet his friends. And he invites people that are of ill repute, tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees take notice. They're not happy. But again, Jesus answers them and show, explains the reason that why he came. He said, it's not the well who need the physician, but the sick. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The problem is that the Pharisees were also sin-sick sinners. They were just too proud to realize it. And the irony here is that Jesus tells these teachers of the law, these people who should have known God's word, the Old Testament scriptures, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Does Jesus not care about sacrifices, the sacrifices that were commanded by God to the Israelite people, the sacrifices in the law? Didn't Jesus say, I didn't come to abolish the law but fulfill it? Well, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea is warning the people of Israel to repent of their sins because they've been faithless to, to their God, to King, to King Yahweh. And the people of Israel, they've turned away from Yahweh, from their king, the king of Israel, and they've committed spiritual adultery. They're loving other gods. They've forsaken Yahweh. Hosea 6, 1 through 7. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will rise us up. little reference to the resurrection, by the way. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. You see, the Pharisees, they disobeyed God's most basic command to show steadfast love to those who were suffering, to those who were disabled, to those who were lost and on a path of eternal destruction towards hell. The Pharisees were supposed to be shepherds, of God's people. They were supposed to seek out the lost sheep, but instead they were proud. They were cold-hearted. They didn't care that these tax collectors and sinners, they were condemned in their sins and headed straight to hell. They didn't care about that. Their pride blinded them to the knowledge of God and the mercy of God. And I believe Jesus is speaking for, to those among us who can be tempted to think that we are morally good, be tempted to think that we're superior to those people, to other people. Those of us who can be tempted to think, oh, we're law-abiding citizens, we work hard, we pay our taxes, we vote in a biblical way, we don't do the bad stuff that the bad people do. And the temptation is towards pride and self-righteousness, to look down on those who don't do the good things that we do. And on the surface, these people do look different. Right? I mean, the Pharisees, they didn't go into people's houses and rob people. They weren't working for the Roman oppressors. On the surface, they looked different. But deep down inside, they were all the same. They were all bad on the inside. They were all in desperate need of Jesus and his power to forgive them. So Jesus, what Jesus is basically telling the Pharisees is that if you really understood the nature of sacrifice, and sacrifice was given by God in the Old Testament 
as a way for a sinful people to approach a holy God. Before you came to a holy God, you had to offer a sin sacrifice, a sacrifice, an animal. A sacrifice was needed for sin. If you really understood the nature of sacrifices, why they were needed, you would, re- you would realize that you need it just as much as they do. That you are just as sick and in need of a doctor as they are. One commentator puts it this way. Could they really be righteous when they knew no mercy for the sinners, were blind to the prophet's word demanding that they have mercy, and railed at the merciful physician? For they were even worse sinners than those whom they despised. They were even worse sinners than those whom they despised. Now, if the Pharisees completely missed the boat on why Jesus came, in our next section, we see that the disciples of John are, are confused. They see that Jesus is partying. He's not fasting. Let's look at verse 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So the disciples of John, these are John the Baptist, are coming to Jesus. They're puzzled. They're wondering why Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. If you remember, John the Baptist was a man of extremes. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. He called people to repentance from sin. And fasting was appropriate for John and his disciples then because fasting was an expression of our sorrow for sin and the anticipation of the coming Messiah. But you see, all of that changed when Jesus the Messiah comes on the scene and inaugurates the kingdom of God. And when he comes on the scene, it's time to celebrate. See, you don't mourn or fast when you go to a wedding celebration. See, that would be rude. In first century Palestine, weddings often lasted seven days. It was a joyous time of celebration. So when you go, when you, if you lived in first century Palestine, you went to a wedding, you didn't show up to fast. You didn't say, You know, I'm fasting, I'm not going to have any appetizers, no drinks, no dessert, no main course. You don't fast when you go to a wedding celebration. You load up on appetizers and entrees and desserts and drinks. One commentator says, we fast when we're sad, but feast when we're glad. Fast when we're sad, feast when we're glad. And so when Jesus is here, so we, we feast, we celebrate, we rejoice. There will be a time when the bridegroom is taken when Jesus is crucified, and then his disciples will fast. Jesus also uses two illustrations to show that he is the turning point in redemptive history. You don't put an unshrunk cloth, to, a piece of new cloth to patch up an old garment, because that new cloth could tear away, and that tear could be worse. It's like, you know, have you ever thrown a pair of jeans in the wash? After they dry, you put them on, and they're really tight, and it's like, did these jeans shrink, or did I put on some weight? Well, maybe a little bit of both. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. 
because the wine, it ferments, it expands, and then it could burst apart the brittle old wineskins. And the point Jesus is making is that in the previous era of redemptive history, God's people were, they were waiting for the kingdom of God. It was a time of anticipation and waiting for the Messiah to come. So it was appropriate for them to fast and long for the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. But now the old era is gone. The new era is here with King Jesus' arrival. The new era, in the new era of redemptive history is no longer anticipation of the Messiah's coming, but celebration of the Messiah's arrival. Right? It's no longer anticipation, but now celebration. And so Jesus, and you know, Jesus is not against fasting. You remember, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, and he also expected his disciples to fast. But now that he is here and the kingdom of God has come, it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate because the sick are healed, the demon-possessed are freed, the lepers are cleansed, sinners are forgiven, and Jesus is the center of worship. And so the question now confronts the disciples of John. Jesus came to forgive, so will you place your faith in him and follow him? Stop following John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist told you to stop following him. He told you to follow the Lamb of God who took, takes away the sins of the world. So stop following John, start following Jesus. And we see this messianic celebration, celebration of the kingdom's arrival. The king is here. We see this celebration reach a climax in the next scene. Let's look at verse 18 through 21. <clears throat> While he was saying these things to them, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up from behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So this ruler of the synagogue pleads with Jesus because his daughter has just died. And again, Matthew's account is shorter. He gets right to the point. This girl who was once alive is now dead. And while Jesus and his disciples are headed over to the ruler's house, a woman who's been bleeding 12 years, spent all that she had trying to get well but couldn't, she comes up from behind Jesus and touches his cloak. Now, these are both situations to avoid. If you touch someone who had a discharge of blood, that would have made you ceremonially unclean. But even worse, if you touched a dead body, that would have made you unclean for not one day, but seven days. So these are both situations to avoid. These were both also desperate situations. The woman would have known not to be in a crowd, because in a crowd, Lots of people would have been bumping up against her. She would have been bumping up against other people. And everyone who touched her would have also become unclean. But this woman was desperate and was going to let a crowd stop her from getting to Jesus. And this ruler knew that his child was dead, so he was also desperate. So these were both situations to avoid and also desperate situations. But these were both situations that Jesus welcomed. Jesus welcomed both these situations. You see, this woman with an incurable disease was treated below a second-class citizen. She was impoverished. She was bleeding constantly. She was constantly unclean. She needed Jesus. 
And maybe you can identify with this woman. Maybe you feel so weary from life and don't know how you can go on. Maybe you're the mother of young children. You feel like at the end of each day, your life is just feels like it's drained. And you don't know how you can make it. Maybe you feel like you can identify with the ruler of the synagogue. Maybe outwardly, it seems like you have made it. You've achieved what others could have only dreamed they could achieve. But in either case, you need Jesus. And Jesus welcomes you. He welcomes you in your affliction, your, your weakness, and your sin. For all those who come to him by faith, for those who cast their burdens on him, for those who abide in him, he welcomes you. For those of us who, who know him, how can we abide in him more? How can we express that deep desperation, that deep dependence? And I want to encourage you, make prayer a regular part of your life. It doesn't have to be long prayers. Maybe you're headed to a work meeting, and you know it's going to be hard. Just pray, God, help me to glorify you in this meeting. Help me to honor you. Help me not to fear man, but to fear you. Give me strength and courage. Maybe you feel like you're at home having to discipline your children for the 20th time, and they're not getting it. Just pray, God, give me, give me courage. Give me love. Give me perseverance. Give me joy. Give me faith to see the value in, in loving my children and disciplining them. Jesus welcomes all of us who come to him in desperation. He welcomes us into this comprehensive, all-encompassing salvation for any who will come to him by faith, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or whether you have yet to come to Jesus for the first time. He welcomes you if you come to him by faith. And it's this comprehensive salvation where Jesus doesn't just remove the guilt of sin, but the curse of sin. He doesn't just come to heal the soul, but heal the body. Jesus came to heal us from our sickness and disease and death, a reality that began when he came and will be fully realized when he comes again. Faith and following Jesus begins with that sense of desperation, with that sense of desperation. But it doesn't end there. Faith and following also means imitating Jesus in his character, in his compassion, in his heart. Church family, where do we need to look for opportunities to practice the heart of Jesus? Church, how do we as a, how do we as a family, how does God want us to move towards those who are on the fringes, to help with compassion those who are in need, those who are in need? Not in a, I've got it all figured out and I'm here to fix you kind of way, but hey, I'm a fellow broken, weak sinner in need of a Savior, and I just want to bear your burdens with you. I want to walk with you. I want to pray with you. I want to be with you. How do we move towards needs rather than away from needs, just as Jesus moved towards these desperate cases of need? If Jesus has moved towards you and your desperate need, if you've experienced the patience and grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you can't help but move towards others who are in need because Jesus has first moved towards you in your need. Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
and instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This verb translated made well, as in your faith has made you well, is the Greek verb sozo, which means saved. So this is salvation language. Your faith has saved you. And this physician who came not to call the righteous, but sinners, who came for the sick, not for the healthy, this physician, he touches the unclean. He touches the dead, and he imparts his life, his cleanliness. And notice how Jesus interestingly uses the word sleep. R.T. France writes, Death is not the end, and in the case of this little girl, it will prove to be only a temporary experience. Her death is real, but it is not final. Jesus' resurrection has overcome the finality of death itself and given a new force to the metaphor of sleep, which can apply to all those who die. So if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you have come to him by faith, death is not final. Death is never final for those who die in Christ. Those who belong to Jesus, we are united to him in his death and his resurrection. Meaning as he died to sin, we died to sin. And as he rose from the dead powerfully, we also will rise again. And Matthew wraps up this section here in in chapter 9 with two more miraculous healings in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let's look at uh, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this seen, been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So as Jesus passed on from there, after raising this little girl from the dead, two blind men start following him. And Jesus explains, it's interesting, after he, he miraculously heals them, cures them of their blindness, he, he tells them not to tell other people. It's kind of odd. Right? Wouldn't Jesus want everyone to know that he's God and king and he's a miracle worker? Well, the reason is that he didn't want to give people the wrong expectation. He is Messiah. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. But he didn't come as a political savior. He didn't come uh, to destroy the Roman Empire and to set up a kingdom right then and there. He didn't come. He didn't want the people to make him king by force. You remember, he came to save his people from their sins. And the mystery of the kingdom is that the king comes twice. First, as a suffering servant who dies on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, we broke God's law, Jesus paid our fine, 
And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead and then later on ascended into heaven. And then, and then later on, he will come a second time. Come to judge the living and the dead. Come as judge and ruler, as a political messiah. But that comes when he returns a second time. See, the crowds and the leaders, they're, they're jumping ahead. They're forgetting that the Messiah has to first come and die on the cross for their sins. First the cross and then the crown. It's true for us also. And faith is the key. Do you catch the, catch the faith of the blind men, right? These, these men are blind. They've never seen Jesus perform a miracle. They're blind. But they believe the testimony about Jesus. They place their faith in him and they are healed. So Jesus performs these miracles, case is closed, Jesus proves that he is God, the scribes and the Pharisees worship him. Not quite. Verse 34, the end of our section for tonight. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The chapter opens up with the religious leaders accusing Jesus of blasphemy. But now it's the religious leaders who are committing blasphemy. They're misusing and disrespecting God's name, basically saying, Jesus, you're evil. Jesus, you're demonic. And this is scary. I mean, think about it. I mean, these leaders, they've seen Jesus perform these miracles. They've seen him do amazing things that only God can do. They can't deny these miracles, but rather than lead them to faith, in fact, they choose to harden their hearts, and they choose to turn away from Jesus. And rather than worship to Christ and surrender to him, they say Jesus is evil and Jesus is demonic, which shows that miracles are no guarantee of faith. And this is a preview of, a, of the coming showdown between the religious leaders and Jesus, those leaders who are determined to stop Jesus at any cost. They have refused to come to Jesus that they might have life. They have refused the pardon, just like George Wilson refused the presidential pardon. But maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you are also in danger of making the same mistake that George Wilson did. That you are in danger of refusing that divine pardon, that divine pardon of forgiveness of sins that is freely given by grace alone. Maybe you're here sitting tonight, and you're, you're, you're too proud to admit that you are a desperate sinner in need of God, in need of his forgiving grace. Maybe you think, by grace alone, through faith alone, that's too good to be true. Or maybe you'd rather die than change the way you live. Rather die than surrender your life and follow King Jesus. Do what he says. Make him king and lord of your life. Well, the question still remains. Jesus came to forgive, so will you place your faith in him and follow him? Will you humble yourself like that paralytic like the ruler, like the bleeding woman, like the blind men? Will you obey the call of Jesus as Matthew did, who got up, left everything, and followed Jesus? Will you follow Jesus, and will you surrender to Jesus? Amen.